the potential for Tortoise is is a bit greater from the perspective of transforming how the services work. Because if you have the scooters coming to customers or moving to higher ridership zones, or you know, Alex, you mentioned it, going to a charging station, it could really be transformative in terms of micromobility operations. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the Communications Director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, the co-host of the No Parking Podcast, and Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, although I do not represent them here today on the Atonicast. And today we have Ben Baer, the Chief Business Officer of spin. Welcome, Ben. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, you're obviously a smart guy, and um, and I like you for reasons that have nothing to do with spin, and that is because you um, are always looking at interesting investments outside of mobility. Do you want to talk about that? No comment. <laughs> what are these interesting investments? Well, I'm you know I've been looking a lot. Um, about Clubhouse and wondering when they're going to have like better ticketing tools and like some kind of like interface for management of events and rooms. Um, and, you know, Hopin is out there because, you know, COVID and virtual events. And then our old friend, Victor, Victor Pontus, yeah. has got something called Luma, which is quite interesting. And I've been thinking about the moth. And, you know, and so I was trying to get Ben, he's very secretive, to reveal some of his insights into, say, Hmm, what other interesting ideas might be out there? And he wouldn't tell me. And now I did. Uh, Don't tell Alex anything. Alex and I were commiserating about not being able to get into the Luma round off the record. <laughs> I mean, I think I was too late. Anyway, Ben, um, if you ever want to talk uh, to the Atonicast about the thought process that went into starting Spin and how you bring that thought process to other, uh, other projects, it, I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. Um, anyway, welcome to Atomicast. Great to be here. Well, so a year from now, are Alex and Ben going to have their own little startup that is somehow trying to leverage the tech tool or you know sell tech tools to Clubhouse? Is this where it begins? Ben he, Ben is young and he's on fire, and I'm getting older now. I have the energy. But. Ah. We have no uh, startup rolling fund or anything else to, or <laughs> cryptocurrency to, to announce. Although I do find Alex very smart and entertaining. Are you, Ben, are you going to do like an X spinners someday? Like uh, when you're all going to move on and, uh, and then have a fun of like your, your founders, like lift the spin us. mafia. Yeah. The spin mafia. Is that a thing? I'll never say never. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think we're, we're all for more startups that are world positive and, pro-social and work with governments rather than working against them getting started. This guy's good. This guy's good. Well, you t- tell us what you're here. Tell us why you're here today. Well, he's here because we invited him here. Yeah, but he's got some, some cool stuff going on. Ben? Well, he does. He does. But I, I actually have a question. All right. I'll stop now. <laughs> okay. People, yeah. know, people know that I like him. So. Well, it's related to, I think, what we want to talk about. Um, so, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was the, the spin introduced its new three wheeled scooter, and then there's some teleoperations software in there provided by Tortoise. 
Um, and then the scooter was through a partnership with uh, Segway. Is that right, Ben? Yeah. So this was a really exciting announcement about a three-way partnership that we've been working on for more than a year. So we announced an exclusive partnership with Tortoise to provide teleoperations for the Segway um, scooter, three-wheeled scooter. We're calling it the Spin S200. Um, and basically, we'll be able to you know, initially have the scooters repark themselves and rebalance within a matter of a few blocks. Um, and then later on this year, actually have the scooter come to the customer. Um, so almost like ride hailing for scooters. So you could be um, you know, wanting a scooter to be out in front of your house at 8 a.m. Uh, on every morning when you go to work and, and it'll be there. Um, and so really excited about the reliability and the additional accessibility that teleoperated scooters can bring to the market. Um, and really excited for us to be first on it and, and have a, a period of time that will allow us to iterate on it and, and really figure it out because there is a lot to figure out with this. So like it was what? interesting. I was, yeah, I want to hear what there is to figure out. Um, I did want to just briefly comment that when I was talking to Dimitri, who's the you know co-founder and CEO of Tortoise, he, we were talking a lot about the tech and he was like, actually, I think that the most innovative thing is the three wheels. Um, and no one's really paying attention to that. And it really unlocks the accessibility uh, piece of it beyond a demographic of, you know, younger 20 somethings who feel comfortable balancing on, you know, two small wheels. Um, and I'm wondering what else there is. You mentioned there's a lot to figure out. Um, if that's a piece of it and, and what else is there? Yeah. So when I told my dad about this, he's uh, 71, he said, I might actually get on one of these things. Um, so that's certainly something that we're hopeful is that, you know, older riders, women, a lot of folks who haven't jumped right on the two wheel form factor um, will feel more comfortable with this form factor because it's more stable. Um, so that's a big piece of it um, in terms of the vehicle. I think a big question on the vehicle is, A, is it more appealing to those different demographics that we think it will be? Um, B, is it appealing to the general scooter rider? Um, you know, As we all remember, scooters took the world by storm um, and really exploded because people were literally voting with their feet. How will they react to this form factor? And then on the teleop teleoperations piece, we were really frankly surprised that so many cities were open-minded to this. So we had about 14 cities that Tortoise had talked to and we checked in with that were open to launching teleoperations this year. We decided to go with Boise um, for the initial pilot. And the things we're looking to learn there are, you know, frankly, how do pedestrians as well as riders react when there are zombie scooters going around at three to five miles an hour? Um, and what's the impact going to be uh, on both the demand side and the cost side? Um, so there was an MIT study that was done and it was theoretical, but it basically uh, estimated that you could see up to 10 times as many trips from the same number of micromobility devices if the vehicles were able to move themselves short distances from low ridership zones to high ridership zones. We want to figure out if that's true. Um, and then, you know, how many more trips are out there? Um, you know, if you look broadly at micromobility, about 1% of trips in the US are uh, coming from alternative transportation. You know, it's better than that in Europe. How much can that increase if a scooter can be out in front of your house or out in front of your bus stop every single day? Um, and does that make shared scooters 
as reliable as a car or a personally owned device, um, but with the benefits and flexibility that, that shared fleets bring you. Can we go back to this thing about the zombie scooters? Have yeah. you done field testing where you send one or more zombie scooters past a crowd of people who don't know they're coming? We have done field testing where we are evaluating the technology and people have seen them. Um, so I don't know if that counts. Um, and generally, no one's kicked them over or punched them. Um, and people have said things like, that seems like the future. So that's certainly what we're hoping. Um, you know, I think one sort of analog that has gotten a bit of exposure out there in the world already uh, is these delivery robots, these sidewalk delivery robots. And so, you know, optically, it's somewhat similar. Um, but this is the first time in Boise, if you're in Boise later this year, um, it's the first time you'll see uh, scooters actually driving by you uh, down the bike lane or the sidewalk. Is, is there research um, on vandalism of delivery bots like Starships? Because I, I can't lie, when I see them, I want, I want to kick them. Oh. I haven't seen any research on it. We have talked to a few folks from the delivery robot companies. And what they've told us is similar to what we learned introducing, introducing uh, scooters and, and bikes into the fold, is that there is this sort of initial period when you launch where people are still getting used to them and they're new um, and you know they don't blend into the landscape yet. And there's a bit more vandalism uh, in those early stages, but then that dissipates over time. Um, so now people are used to, you know, in Boise, for example, seeing scooters, scooters that are, you know, optically moving themselves, even though they're being remotely operated, are going to be new. And so maybe there will be a period where there's a, a bit of vandalism early on, but we're hopeful since they've already seen scooters that, that that will be mitigated. What struck me about this announcement and others by other companies actually is the amount of tech that's going into these scooters and while I know that there is a focus on making them more reliable and lasting long, I would like to explore this idea of the balance and striking that balance between what is too much tech into it and a device that is going to carry people around and will have a limited lifespan. Um, and is it worth the investment in order to... Um, potentially, but not necessarily definitively attract other, you know, more customers. And, and I, did you have any of those conversations early on? Like, is this necessary? Do we need all this tech in this? What about a more simple device that's three wheels that is more analog as a result? And, you know, was there ever pushback in that conversation? Yeah. So two things on that. One, You'd be surprised, and unfortunately, I can't give specific numbers, but you'd be surprised how little cost this actually adds. Um, there's no LiDAR, right? It's, it's more like uh, sort of a cell phone on wheels. Um, the device has already had IoTs and other sensors on them. Um, this adds you know, front and rear facing low latency cameras, plugs into um, the existing IoT technology that we had. Um, so the cost that's added is not as much as you might think. Um, and we think that the presence of cameras and, and being able to see a live feed of where the scooter is will actually positively impact loss because if we you know, lose track of a scooter, we can literally see you know, where that scooter is through a live feed um, on, the, on the scooter itself. 
which gives us an additional really strong signal um, on top of GPS. Are those losses that that and that you, what you just said made um, made a ton of sense about cameras um, mitigating losses, right? You think of like a a Tesla too. I mean, right? Like the the driver assistance features are enabled by a camera that also allows them to do a sentry mode kind of a thing, right? Um, is that loss are, are losses from whether vandalism or you know people putting things into you know inaccessible places or or what have you? Is that you know I know that was sort of along with the the meteoric sort of boom in, in 2018 of, of scooters, you know, that was part of the narrative as well. I'm wondering, is that something that has gone away with, with the, you know, as with the novelty, essentially, um, is that still a major issue? Sort of where are we with, with that whole kind of aspect of this? Yeah. So we've made tremendous progress on that front really across all of our markets. Um, you know, you see some companies saying that they have, you know, two-year lifespans on devices that they just rolled out last month. I'm not quite sure how they calculate those exactly. Um, but we see that the scooters are lasting an entire season or more at this point, really to the point of obsolescence in terms of staying competitive with the market. I think the biggest drivers of that, in addition to people getting used to seeing them, is that they're now made for the shared use case. So these are industrial vehicle grade use cases. Um, what was happening early on is that there were actually theft rings that were taking these scooters and recalibrating them to be equivalent to consumer models, which could then be resold because they were consumer models in the early days actually on the street. And now these are purpose-built vehicle-grade shared fleets that are out there. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to get back. You said really early on, um, you know, you, you mentioned sort of the importance of, of uh, actually, it might have even been before we started recording. You, you were talking about sort of the importance of, of companies, you know, having a good relationship with the, with the governments um, whose cities that they operate in. And I think that has clearly the history of micromobility so far as has shown um, sort of how those different approaches could potentially have very different um, outcomes. I'm wondering, because um, I know, like, for example, in Portland, uh, Oregon, where I live, um, you know, the city has rules around sort of where you locate scooters and, and, and micromobility uh, devices as part of their, their, their um, program, sort of regulating the space and, and you know, uh, to ensure really that, that, for example, low income neighborhoods are being well served by them. Is that it? it I'm curious, just specifically in Boise, where you're starting out, is that a factor in that deployment where you have sort of that kind of uh, policy and you're having to, to use this new technology to comply with that? Um, and uh, if not there, then then maybe is that sort. You know, how how does that sort of fit in with with this step that you're taking? So the Boise pilot is going to be specifically in uh, the urban core, um, but we are very excited about this as a vehicle to expand accessibility to additional neighborhoods um, in a couple ways. One, the three wheel device is more stable; you can more easily put a seat on it. Um, and so you can have this more accessible vehicle uh, come to folks, even though you might not have a huge fleet of them out on the street. Two, there's an opportunity to really serve less dense neighborhoods potentially with this. So, you know, it's not the dense urban or campus core where you're going to have hundreds of thousands of scooters and where the walk score and the bike score is really high and where it's just sort of a no brainer for these services. But, you know, maybe as you get out into these suburbs and exurbs, you can have fewer devices serving um, people and making it still a reliable way to, to get around. That makes sense. 
Are, are you in just are you in general seeing more or less? Because, again, I know, you know, the way sort of the, the scooter boom sort of hit a lot of cities, um, a lot of this regulatory stuff was, you know, in some ways just sort of um, a, a it was a reaction to that, right? And particularly the sudden and, and kind of intense nature of, of that. Um, is that also something that, um, you know, our cities that, that you're working with, um, are they continuing to sort of move in that direction of more regulation? Has that kind of also backed off a little bit as this has, you know, it's no longer the kind of thing where you have every day another company showing up and just dumping tons and tons of scooters on their streets? Yeah, so from the early days, it's been, we announced a partnership promise to never launch without permission. Um, we really stuck with it from the beginning. Uh, I think a lot of the early companies that uh, had sort of bird, uh, had Uber, sorry, Freudian slip, um, had Uber Was it? Um, personnel <laughs> coming in, um, had a different approach because in ride sharing, the cities didn't really have the right to regulate in the same way. You had individuals who owned their own cars driving around versus companies putting devices out sitting in the public right of way. So the cities, you know, almost like they had had a, an abusive former relationship, really wanted to bounce back and, and find a way to make this time different. Um, and I think our timing was really good there. Um, and it's continued to move in that direction. So uh, in 2018, I think 38% of SPIN's markets were either exclusive or limited vendor. Um, presently, that's 62%. Uh, so every city is basically wanting to move in this direction of what is the ideal sort of public-private partnership with fewer or one vendors look like that's going to serve their community for the long term? A couple of specific examples. So uh, Providence started out as completely open season, was rogue launched by multiple companies. In late 2019, the city moved to a two-company permit with us and one other player. Uh, and then we're now moving to an exclusive relationship with the city, which will include additional investment in spin hub charging stations, mobility as a service, tighter integration with the city's transit system. Another system that is exclusive that we're going to be launching in April is in Pittsburgh, where we've collaborated with Zipcar, Waze, Transit App, uh, the Pittsburgh Public Transit System, the Pittsburgh Bike Share System, all on a collaborative approach to bringing micro mobility to the fold, along with all these other non-car forms of transportation. Because um, it needs to be as easy to, to take a non-car form of transportation as it is to leave your house every day and turn the key to your car, which is going to work 99% of the time. Uh, unfortunately, it's not great for the environment if everyone's driving cars everywhere for these trips. Um, and it's not accessible to most people. I think the average selling price for uh, new vehicles last year was forty thousand um, dollars. So, you know, while that's good for the the mothership, um, that's not going to be good for for all people um, who are trying to serve. I have a question for you about this exclusivity. It's clearly beneficial to spin to lock in exclusive deals, and I could see why it would be great for city management. But just fundamentally, is that the best for? the public. I mean, isn't it potentially better to have multiple different vendors within a city um, to encourage competition and sort of the more capitalist idea of, you know, the best services, you know, end up being used the most and all in the public pushes for, you know, everyone to uh, for companies to 
operate in a certain way. What's what's your perspective on that? Every city should be exclusive to spend. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, I think uh, I, I think uh, what what we're seeing is that medium and small size cities and then universities are leaning into more exclusive relationships because it gives them the leverage to ask for more um, from a partner in terms of how the system is fitting into the overall transit ecosystem. I think larger cities like a San Francisco or a DC or a Paris or a London are going to have more of the you know, sort of three to five vendor uh, setups moving forward. Uh, and that does give a bit more uh, optionality to customers and a bit more coverage, but it's not this free-for-all that you see in places like Austin or LA or, or in Berlin, um, where there is no ability to have uh, city permits at this point, uh, where nobody is really having their needs met. The operators aren't able to make money. There's no path to profitability. And the cities don't get a reliable system that um, you know the customer can use one or a few apps to access. Austin is an interesting case because I think that w- what South by was that when there was this amazing transition that occurred, I think it was 2019, I want to say, where the year before was like a lot of e-bikes. And then in 2019, it seemed like scooters kind of took over um, and they were everywhere and we were riding them a lot, of course. And what do you think is going to happen to a city like Austin? Because, you know, we see just as an industry expert, you know, not just someone from spin, we see Revel was trying to be there with shared mopeds, but said that the car, that it was too car centric for them to be able to compete. I'm not sure if I believe that one, but um, you see them struggle with, with congestion, but then there's all this interest because of the tech world. Um of all these different sort of mobility options. What do you think is going to happen to a a city like Austin? Austin has struggled to implement regulations that limit the number of vendors, at least in our space, which I think has made it challenging for almost everybody. I think the other element to Austin is that uh, a lot of the, the traffic is in a very small area downtown and then this other area out by the University of Texas. And so it's very concentrated and you don't have regulations that really organize the micromobility devices in a reasonable way. And so it just hasn't, it hasn't worked out well for us as a market, uh, even though you would think it would be great in terms of the demographics and how the city is set up and how tech forward the city is. So that's interesting that you say that. So do you see that as Austin as like an uh, odd outlier or more of the actual, the a similar, like an archetype for U.S. cities in general? Are you running into more cities that are like Austin that from far away seem like the perfect fit, but then once you get in there, realize that the design, the car culture, it's various reasons, there just is a difficult market to break into? Yeah, so um, Austin is an outlier in terms of cities that we've observed. I think if you look in Europe, there's more cities like in Germany specifically that have sort of an Austin vibe to them just because they're not able to implement limited vendor regulations. But like I mentioned earlier, across the board, we now see more than 60% of cities at limited vendor or exclusive. And every city wants to move in that direction because they want these things to be a form of transportation and, and not a nuisance. Um, another thing that I'd mentioned that's pretty interesting that we 
recently announced is called Spin Insight. Uh, it's powered by an exclusive partnership with a startup called Drover. And basically what that does is utilizes a front-facing camera along with machine learning to identify in real time whether the scooter is on the sidewalk, whether it's in a bike lane, whether it's on the street. And we can provide real-time feedback to the rider, as well as providing feedback to cities on where people are riding these things that there might not be safe infrastructure. Because you know, oftentimes the, the nuisance riding from a city perspective, when someone might go on a sidewalk, is because there's no other alternative and people don't feel safe riding on the street. So infrastructure really is the big answer long-term, along with uh, strong regulations that limit the number of vendors and help the city organize the system in a way that best meets its needs. So are you going to automate the rebalancing uh, or is there like a central command and control uh, that is going to make the decisions like, you know, every day uh, on a daily basis based on like, you know, variable factors? Yeah. So we have a, a algorithm that basically tells us where the best place is to put a scooter in the morning. Um, so that's a big factor. And I, think, I assume every company has a similar algorithm that they that they work on. That's a big factor in terms of maximizing utilization today. With Tortoise, the way it will work is that our operations team will put in a rebalancing request, and then Tortoise's team of teleoperations, Tortoise's teleoperations team will then take over the scooter, almost like you know a remote control Hot Wheel car that you might have driven as a as a kid, um, and move that scooter to the requested location. And they carry all the insurance and manage this entire process. So from our team's perspective, all we're saying is take the scooter from A to B. Now, what we want to do is plug in our rebalancing algorithm in in Boise so that we're actually able to do this multiple times throughout the day um, and maximize ridership. And I think that'll make a big difference in terms of the potential utilization of these devices. Uh, So is there a wireless charging functionality coming for these things? We haven't announced anything there yet, but it's a, it's an interesting idea. Oh, you see where I'm going with it. All right. Elon <laughs> Musk's tunnel uh, that he's been proposing in Vegas and now in Miami. Would, uh, wouldn't it be more efficient to, if there is a tunnel, I mean, I, I'm, I'm opposed to these tunnels, to pack them full of scooters and cars? Um, we think so. So in a place like Vegas, one of my biggest complaints, you all may be laughing, but I'm telling you, this is a legitimate concern. I hate when I get a room at the end of the hall of a hotel, which has very long hallways. As you know, from going to Vegas, it could be half a mile. So is there anything prohibiting use or say rebalancing a scooter or me reserving a scooter that literally goes up an elevator to the end of the hall to my room? Las Vegas has been slow to uh, permit scooters because of the lack of infrastructure. we haven't explored any indoor use cases, but one thing I'll say in terms of bringing scooters to Vegas is that we did, we are rolling out in Q1 a drunk rider quiz, which we think is going to be very effective. So that might make it uh, more viable, the use case you're describing. Would that be something that you would ask, basically be a little quiz before they can deploy a scooter? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, before a rider can start yeah. a trip um, well, after hours. Look, you know, so my family used to be in the car rental business and there was, and we're, we're, I'm far enough removed from it, I can say this. There were, we didn't have like um, blacklists. Uh, we were a 
vent, we were a, an agent for Avis and Hertz and other companies. But we would have, you know, um, we would place reservations for car rentals in Europe, for Americans going to Europe, and we'd get replies back saying we won't rent to that person. People who, like, the car rental companies, at least in the 90s, had, they were sharing lists of people that were known to damage vehicles or just, they ended up being liabilities. So if you have this technology or the camera on the scooter, you obviously have some record of um, whether the scooter has been damaged, you know who it was, and you know what they did with the scooter. Like, what is the moderation, I don't want to call it moderation policy. Like, do you have a policy in place for dangerous riders who are using your product? Yeah, so in terms of recourse for the riders, we don't have a universal policy in place. We tend to work with each city in terms of how they want to to treat folks who repeatedly violate protocols in terms of damaging uh, equipment or unsafe ridership. Alex, you're thinking. I'm thinking what I can get, what can I get away with in these spin scooters? <laughs> Did you read the article that Matt Farah wrote last year where he was reviewing the different scooters in Venice Beach? I didn't see that one. Uh, I mean, I, uh, and I, I forget what the outcome was, but he was basically saying some of these scooters have better brakes than others, and some have speed limits that are different from others. And boy, if he was going to launch an illegal race, it would be a, a shared electric scooter circuit around Venice Beach um, because many people are not properly educated on what scooters can do. Uh, I guess my question was more like, are you in, independent of a city or police department monitoring what the riders are doing? If you become aware that your riders are doing irresponsible things using your cameras, are you going to ban them preemptively? Yeah, I mean, we would. I think we want this to be something that everyone can use. But if people abuse the privilege, then, you know, we can't let the entire system go down because of uh, irresponsible riders. Um, another thing I'd mention is in the industry, there there is a bit of a tension between safety and fun. Um, so, you know, Rad Power just raised a huge round, I think, talk to some folks from their company. And one of the things you'll notice is that for the price point, their, their bikes are really fast and really fun. And they optimize for making it as fast and fun it's as dangerous. possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have consciously moved away from that, but we don't want it to be too slow so that people don't use it because then other uh, companies will lean in the other direction. One thing that we're implementing in some cities is actually... Uh, slow speed initially when you start out. And then as you prove that you're a safe rider after the first couple rides, higher speeds are unlocked. Um, so this balance between fun and safety is something that we and, and all other companies need to think about all the time. That's probably something they should do with new cars, given the quality of driving. No, seriously, I can't believe I'm saying this, but there should absolutely be, like in, in Europe, when you get your driver's license, uh, in France, for many years, maybe I don't know if it's the policy anymore. You're uh, you were limited on a like a like a young person's permit to 90 kilometers an hour, and you had to put a sticker on the back of the car so other people knew what you, what speed you were allowed to drive safely. Um, that's a good thing. Um, a good, good thing. I'm very surprised yeah. that you're endorsing that actually as the member <laughs> or the founder of the Human Driving Association. Here's the thing: the majority of people will never go to the lengths necessary to learn how to ride or drive safely. They're just not going to do it. Like they go on instinct and they, and that's the end of it. Um, 
And how do you think this would have affected your cannonball run if this were in it place? Wouldn't, it wouldn't have had any effect at all because determined people, people who are really determined, will hire someone or learn the skills to hack code or whatever a system to do whatever they want. But the ma- the vast overwhelming majority of people are, I think, well intentioned and they just want to go home to their families. And now I'm one of them. So you know, I, I, why would I have any? The average person, you know. They just, you know, they just want to go home safe. So why not give them the tools to do so? And then the lunatic, like I used to be, they're going to break the rules anyway. And so for that, we have law enforcement. So Kirsten, I know has a, a really good question, but I, I want to get one in before she gets to it, because I just I just would love to to kind of get a better sense. I'm trying to imagine, like I've, I've written scooters before. I've used ADAS in cars, advanced driver assistance. I think I've actually seen Ed even crash a scooter before. I think you have. <laughs> in fact, I know you have um, <laughs> under, under heroic circumstances, but that's all we're going to say about that. Right, Kirsten? <laughs> yep. Um, what, what, like, what is that user experience like, right? You don't have, this is not like, you know, any other company going into, you know, like an automaker going into ADAS where it's been around and there's sort of a template. And in fact, it's sort of increasingly Certain functions have been increasingly standardized. How, like, how as a as a user experience, what like what can writers expect from that experience um, that 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 driver assistance adds for them? Yeah. So, in terms of spin insight, what the user's perspective will be is if they start riding on a sidewalk, for example, there's an audible noise that the scooter will make that basically tells you that you're in a place that you shouldn't be. Or conversely, if you're riding in a bike lane and that's where you should be, you'll hear a little bell that is positive reinforcement that uh, tells you that you're in the right place um, in terms of where you should be riding. You also will get sent a push notification. Um, And then, as I mentioned earlier, in some cities, if there are repeated violations, um, the system will actually ban you after a certain point. Um, And there's a manual review process before we do anything like that. Um, So that's how it would work from a user perspective. Um, In terms of the core ride, it wouldn't really change anything um, other than that audible feedback that you're getting. We're experimenting with um, the possibility of being able to slow down the scooter um, as well when it's in certain places that it shouldn't be. But we're being very careful with that for safety reasons. For the safety reasons of like slowing things down or giving the little indicator bell, is there any other incentives, not so much the um, decentive, but incentives that you've toyed around with for riders if they do well. So discounts like monetary incentives if they use the scooter properly. We do have a monetary incentive feature um, that we've rolled out for our spin hub charging stations, um, as well as in some cities for uh, preferred parking, you know, basically decals on the ground where you're supposed to, to park, where the user will get a discount in exchange for parking in the right place. The technology in terms of spin insight or sidewalk detection uh, is still too early for us to tie any monetary reward to it, but that's something we'll look at in the future and it's a good idea. Does it work though? I mean, have you found that people will then repeatedly seek out and park it or do they go and opt for convenience and just dump the scooter wherever? We did some user research on this and found that people were willing to go up to about a block and a half. Um, so you're not going to go more out of your way than than that to get to a charging station. But if it's within a block, especially if people uh, get 
some reward for it, they're willing to do it. Okay. Um, another thing we found is that you know most riders are not um, trying to create this helter skelter urban hellscape where there's scooters all over the place and scooters in trees and in lakes. Most riders want these things to stay around and and be there for them and are are more responsible than uh, than we might give them credit for. Mm-hmm. So here's my tech question. You're talking about Drover and then of course you have the partnership with Tortoise. Why and how are you picking which scooters employ that tech? Are you at a place right now where you're essentially piloting out and seeing which one works um, best? Or are you picking the tech for it for a particular market? Yeah. So we're bringing these, both of these technologies to multiple markets this year. Um, in both cases, the way that we're determining where to go is really where we're wanted um, and where we think it'll be a representative use case for the technologies. And the dynamics in micromobility are that the cities really decide who operates. So if you look at you know, a London or a New York uh, tender process, which are both in the process of making a decision, there's 20, 25 plus applicants for each of them. And that's for you know roughly three spots. And so you have this arms race to really please cities and improve safety um, and improve accessibility and reliability um, among all these companies. And that's what's driving a lot of the innovation uh, in the industry is pleasing cities. And each new city that comes out and, and does a big permit competitive permit process pushes the industry forward in terms of the solutions that we're bringing to the table. Ben, have cities like, wisened up to the behavior of the alumni of some companies as they move on to next generation mobility? Like, has that ship already sailed or cities wise to that? Yeah, they definitely are. We're seeing some cities like Chicago include past behavior in permit applications. So for example, not just have you messed up in Chicago, but have you messed up anywhere in the US and then held that against companies? Uh, and so that's something that we've seen increasing adoption of. You know, Now every company in the space is basically uh, telling the spin story about being a good partner, but they can't really change what they did in the past um, mm-hmm. from our perspective. I, I want to get into the the how cities pick based on uh, the tech. You seem to allude to that that some cities might be more open to, let's say, teleoperations or not. Is that what you meant by that? You didn't explicitly say it, but I guess I'm I still not sure why you would pick Drover tech over Tortoise or vice versa in certain use cases because they essentially try to achieve the same end goal, right? Which is, I mean, one doesn't reposition, but the end goal is increased safety, you know, not having clutter on sidewalks, um, you know, being a good partner with cities, et cetera. So I, I, can you give me a dig a little bit deeper as to why Drover works in some markets or in some scooters and, and why you use Tortoise and others? At a fundamental level, the two-wheel vehicle and the three-wheel vehicle are different modes. So the two-wheel vehicle is still our core micromobility offering and Spin Insight powered by Drover can be added on to our existing two-wheel fleet. 
Whereas the three-wheeled scooter is a completely new mode. Right. And we need to see how riders react to it. Um, I do think that, you know, while they both solve the sidewalk clutter and safety issues in the short term, and while that's a, a big focus, the potential for tortoise is is a bit greater from the perspective of transforming how the services work. Because if you have the scooters coming to customers or moving to higher ridership zones, or Alex, you mentioned it, going to a charging station, it could really be transformative in terms of micromobility operations. So in terms of what we're hoping to see in the next six months or so, um, they're solving for similar problems. In terms of the long-term potential, scooters moving around um, via remote operations has more upside, I'd say. Do you have any early indications at all? Um, uh, because the Boise pilot just started, so this might be a little too early. I assume that the fleet will always be a mix of two-wheel and three-wheel, but I'm wondering if you're seeing any early indications that would actually maybe be surprising and that would encourage you to shift more of the fleet towards three wheels, not just because of the accessibility issue, but because of these other applications using the teleoperations and sort of being able to expand and use the tech to, you know, deliver a scooter to a user, for example. Yeah. So the pilot's launching in the spring in Boise. um, And initially it will be a mixed fleet. So we'll basically be adding incremental, a couple hundred incremental three-wheeled devices to our existing fleet of two-wheeled vehicles. And our thesis going in and our thesis throughout has always been that different modes appeal to different folks. Um, so e-bikes are something we're also going to be piloting in the coming year, two-wheeled scooters, three-wheeled scooters. All of these things we think are different for are, are good for different use cases and different types of users um, within the sort of purview of the last mile to five miles, um, which is really where spin is focused as a as a company. Um, if it's an absolute grand slam home run and it completely transforms um, the entire uh, operational uh, calculus, then it's something that we're going to have to look at. And you know, maybe that's a world where you get retractable training wheels coming out of the two-wheeled devices so that they can be driven around as well. Um, but we're, we're open-minded. I don't think we, we have a strong view going in. What, what does sort of the future, you know, you mentioned um, that you know, you've, the, the vehicles have become a lot more reliable, durable. Um, you know, there's been a lot of improvement there. Um, you know, obviously you've got the remote tele-op, you've got driver assistance, all these things going on. Um, but sort of is, is the, the sort of direction that the, the product, the hardware is going, um, is it pretty much sorted in terms of like form factor and just sort of the general, you know, scooter part itself and that it's sort of, you know, you know, it's going to be ADAS and sensors and, and, and operations related things, or, um, you know, is there, do you think there will be more sort of experimentation with form factors or designs or, or just kind of what, what, what direction, like what are the priorities that are shaping um, sort of future product development? It's not going to tell you that. Um, the, the cities are playing a big role here as well. And so cities are very interested in multi-modality. And so the, moped, the, the form factors that you're seeing the most prominence are the two-wheeled scooter, which is a very strong device with really strong rider uptake at this point. And 
works pretty well and has come a long way, as we mentioned earlier. The e-bike, um, and I think one thing you'll see on e-bikes increasingly is class two e-bikes with a throttle. I think most e-bikes that have been out there uh, so far have been class one pedal assist, which you know works well, but class two brings a whole new group of riders on. Uh, and then e-mopeds are, are increasing in popularity, especially in Europe as well, um, which is a slightly different use case, longer trip, but a little scarier and a little bit less accessible for uh, a lot of riders, which is why we haven't been as laser focused on it. We're very focused on the bike lane right now. Um, in terms of the three-wheel device, um, we're not aware of it having been rolled out anywhere else, but very curious to see how riders react to it. And we think it's going to be more appealing to a, a more diverse group of riders and especially to a, an older population less comfortable with hopping on the two-wheeled device. In terms of whether you'll see you know, dockless electric uh, roller skates or skateboards or anything else, I think uh, I wouldn't expect to see a ton of that in the next year, but I wouldn't rule it out because no one was talking about you know, kick raiders, razor scooters before uh, before they came onto the scene, and then they were everywhere. Um, I think pods are another thing that you've seen some conversation about, and and I know Lime had floated in the early days. We're not leaning into that super hard, but you know, obviously for the cold weather and rainy weather, you know, what's the right micromobility vehicle? It's an interesting idea. So actually, that brings me to another. I mean, where are you in terms of? I mean, is is micromobility just a seasonal business now? I mean, obviously, some see there's seasonality in in every business, right? But like, um, you know, how how important is weather become? Um, is it becoming sort of more of a of a factor in your business or or less? And um, you sort of hinted at the potential of of pods or potentially form factors that might um be all weather capable. Uh, how, how important is, is weather to your business? The reality is today, it is a fairly seasonal business. And I think every you know operator, if they're being honest, will tell you that that's the case. However, if there's good infrastructure in place, like you see in Europe, you go over to Germany and there's people, or Amsterdam, there's people biking in the snow and in the rain because they don't have to deal with cars on their way to work or the grocery store. And so we think if there's more and better infrastructure, they'll mitigate that seasonality somewhat. But you're not going to get everybody out of cars or, or um, you know, out of a, a enclosed vehicle um, during the the rain and snow. And and we don't really expect to. I think on the infrastructure side in the U.S., it's really exciting to see all the the talk and an increasing amount of action coming out of the new administration about the need for complete streets and. That's a factor that can start to push alternative mode share in the direction of what you see in Europe, in the U.S. And we we really need that um, for these to be more than a novelty in terms of how people get around. Is there a um, do you have a, any kind of big ideas around around infrastructure and how to improve the the infrastructure? You know, I mean. Um, it's always fascinating to me that in the early days of the auto industry, um, the auto industry actually uh, led the charge in, in D.C. for a gas tax because they knew that that infrastructure, right, the, the, the better the infrastructure was, the more people would use their product. And, and that was seen very, very different place than I feel like our political culture is today. So I'm, I'm curious to, to think sort of do you have an equivalent sort of big idea to that or, or, or a general philosophy? So we've invested in our streets team, which is made up of ex-urban planners from the beginning. 
And I would say our big idea is not that exciting, but it's supporting the advocates in the cities that have been working on this for years, you know, a hundred years, like you mentioned, um, in cities with ways to build protected infrastructure faster and cheaper than you could have ever imagined before on the bike lane front. Um, we did a project last year, um, it's a design competition um, called the Better Barrier Competition. And the winning design actually took recycled car tires and used them to form a protected infrastructure divider um, in a really scalable way. And so we're talking to some cities now about potentially rolling that out in a very sort of interesting circular economy idea. Uh, on the charging station front and, and parking front, there's also a lot to be done there. So the Biden administration has publicly said that they want to have half a million EV charging stations uh, out for cars. We think micromobility charging should also be part of that conversation. And we're out there securing real estate um, in dense urban and campus cores, whereas a lot of these EV charging companies are out in the suburbs and at malls and focused on a slightly different space than we are. And so we think there's a lot of upside there as well um, as funding gets approved to uh, roll out more of these stations across the country. So I know I've been asking a lot of questions. I'm going to ask one more and then let Alex and, and Kirsten, since we're running a little low on time here, uh, get uh, take us take us out to the to the close. Um, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned the mothership really early on in the in the in the conversation. I think it's very easy to be either confused or cynical about why um, a, an automaker like Ford would would buy a company like Spin. Um, that was my and, question. Oh, was that your question? Oh. A, I think great, this is great a good, minds think alike. This is a great final question. All the pressure comes down to this last question, Ben. So Ed and Alex can tag team on it. How'd you get that meeting, Ben? And what was the pitch? <laughs> that was not my question. But go ahead. No, no, I mean I, you know. Um, so so my question was was gonna be like, yeah, okay, start start with start with Alex's. If you're willing to. What? Which meeting, Alex? With Ford. Hey, Ford, we need to talk. We want to talk. Mm. You won't believe what happened. Why was Ford interested in spin in the first place? Um, so they had been tracking the space for a while. And obviously it was, uh, you know, 2018, it was a manic, excitable time in the micromobility industry. They really liked us because of our approach with cities. And they thought that it aligned well with Ford's position as a trusted company that works with communities and serves communities for more than 100 years. I think even though Ford makes its money from trucks and SUVs and transit vans, Bill Ford back in 2011 gave a TED Talk talking about the need for a future beyond traffic, a more sustainable future, leaned into electric vehicles. I think they recognize that the current product mix is not really for that dense urban and campus core um, and they needed a solution. And I think that's the value that um, we really bring to the table. Hopefully, I still have a job after after that yeah. answer. So so my question was, was um, how has that relationship benefited Spin? Uh, what, how, you know, what, what are, are there things that you collaborate on? Are there things that, that you get? I mean, besides obviously financial support, right? They, they make a lot of money. Um, and... Uh, that's helpful. But but beyond just financial, um, what are the, I guess, synergies you would call them uh, if you're a business consultant uh, between Spin and Ford? What's the relationship like? How, how do you, 
um, yeah, how do you benefit from that, that partnership? Ford's done a great job of letting us run fairly independently, even though we are a complete 100% owned subsidiary of Ford. We report into the AV group. So we're very tightly coupled with all of their new mobility solutions. And I think I like the way that... And so, yeah, Alex, you might know something about that. I like um, the, uh, the way that it's really benefited us and is that it's allowed us to play a much longer game than some of the other companies that are focused on raising the next round and, and building hype. We're really able to think about what this should look like 5, 10, 15 years from now as a core part of urban and campus transportation infrastructure. And we're able to do that with the credibility of a company that's been doing this for well over 100 years. Yeah, it's fascinating. I actually didn't realize that um, that you all reported to the AV um, group. Uh, that's really fascinating. I was actually just talking to, uh, on on Twitter a little bit about sort of this perception that, like, you know, among I think a lot of urbanists, um, this is something I deal with in my job at at, at Pave. Um, is you know a lot. There's this perception, I think, this assumption that that AVs are just about perpetuating. Um, cars, you know, the, the automotive, you know, dominance of, of cars on mobility in this country and that they fundamentally trade off with sort of the goals of urbanists to make cities more walkable and bikeable and, and scooterable and, and all the other cool things. Um, and it's fascinating that, that um, at Ford, at least that's seen as, they're seen as sort of two, two sides of the same coin. That's really interesting, isn't it? Well, if you think about what we're doing, you know, just from a, a synergy perspective, we're working with cities and getting permits from cities and the, the cities view these permit processes and data sharing processes as, you know, sort of forerunners to what uh, similar problems might look like in the AV world. We're figuring out how to maximize a fleet of shared vehicles and maximize utilization, minimize downtime. Um, we're building technology that allows us to move these vehicles more efficiently around cities and campuses to maximize utilization. So, you know, rather than just sort of theoretically trying to figure out some of these problems, we're able to to do it in the real world. Absolutely. Well, that I think is probably a pretty good good place to to wrap up there. Um if uh folks want to are you are you on social media? Is there somewhere that folks should follow you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at @nwbear and then on uh, Clubhouse occasionally Alex we're going to spend oh, some time on. there, right? Oh, come on. We will see. We will see. We will not see. We will hear you on Clubhouse. I guess I should say. I've only talked once on Clubhouse, so I'll probably be in the the back listening in to uh, Vladimir Putin when he gets interviewed by Elon Musk next time I'm there. <laughs> As will we all. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ben, thanks so much for joining us, and to our audience, thank you for listening to another episode of the Atonicast.